This week on Dig Me Out, Tim and Jay are joined by Tim Stewart of Scream Feeder to revisit the album Kitten Licks. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi, and joining me once again, my co-host, Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay, how are you doing this evening? Pretty good, pretty good. Yes. Uh, so uh, I'm, I am, uh, I'm good. I'm good. This, this episode comes out one week after the book came out, so uh, it's been an interesting week putting out my first book, and um, it's been fun, got a lot of positive feedback, looking forward to uh, people actually reading it and seeing if they uh, enjoyed it as much as they were excited for it. So, Where are you going to put all that cash you're going to get? Well, um, I'm thinking about buying a hamburger, <laughs> and I think I'm going to put my money that I'm making towards that from the book towards a hamburger. Oh, yeah. Because uh, while it is fun to publish on your own, um, there's a large chunk of money that gets taken out by uh, Amazon. So, really, what's the breakdown? Uh, let's see. What I'm, I'm charging twelve bucks for the book, and I think I'm making four dollars per Oof. book. Wow. Yeah. People thought iTunes was bad. Yeah. That's well, they do rough. have to print each copy of the book. True. 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 So it's there. That's their cost, and then I guess they have to you know keep a web page up and all that. So, but that's diverting us from uh, our our main topic. Uh, we have a listener suggestion. Our good friend of the show, Gavin Reed, he did some real legwork for us on this one, Jay, because not only did he suggest an album that neither of us were familiar with, although I'd heard the name before, and I, I'm pretty sure that back in the college radio days, we we spun a, t- a tune or two by this band. But uh, he not only picked the album, he then reached out to the lead singer of the band and said, hey, you should go on this podcast and hooked us up. So joining us from, I'm going to mispronounce it, Brisbane, Australia. Did I, did I say that correctly, Tim? <laughs> no. No, not at all. Every single person always says that. Well, I tried. I mispronounced a lot of you know, things on um, the show. You know where it comes from? In the film Jaws, there's a scene where uh, the guy, I can't remember his name, but the scientist who comes aboard the boat, he says, I'm going to Brisbane, and I think like from then on, everybody calls it that. Is it <laughs> Brisbane? Is that closer? Brisbane, yeah. yeah. Brisbane. Okay, good. Well, here, proper introduction. Joining us from the band Scream Feeder, amongst other projects, Tim Stewart, all the way across the globe. It's 10.30 his time in the morning. It's 8.30 p.m. in our time. So he's literally a day ahead of us, experiencing the future while we're talking. So... <laughs> Thanks for joining us. And, uh, Thanks. Yeah. And so Gavin, this was actually an album that Gavin talked to me about well over a year ago. Um, he, we had reviewed some other records that he suggested. UMI, we did, he's our big Australian correspondent. We referred to him. We, we checked out a UMI record. We checked out, um, what was it, Asteroid B612, I mm-hmm. think. And uh, he, he was pointing me in the direction of Scream Fader for like a year. And he's like, you got to check out this album. You got to check out this band. And um, we finally were able to get it into the schedule. So, which is quite packed with bands every week. So I'm looking forward to this. We don't often get to talk to um, people from outside the U.S. Most of our interviews are, are U.S. based. So this is a, a fun change of pace. So for people who aren't familiar with Scream Feeder, Tim, can you give us a little bit of history about the band, where you guys formed, and and um, how the members met? Sure. Well, um, you've got to go back 22 years to 1991. 
Um, I just moved to Brisbane from a small a small town called Townsville, which is up sort of um, in the tropics actually. And um, it was a kind of really exciting time for music. Like it was pre-internet, of course, and there was a lot of what you'd call a real scene happening in Brisbane with a lot of heavy sort of guitar, rock, kind of indie bands. And it was right on that cusp of, um, you know, it was going away from the whole 80s indie rock vibe into the 90s pre-grunge kind of thing as well. So it was a really awesome time. And um, I just moved down here and I hooked up, well, I had a band already actually called The Madman. And we hooked up with a girl called Kelly who offered us her lounge room to rehearse in. And one thing led to another and a couple of members fell away and we got Kelly in the band and we did some demos and we changed the name to Screen Feeder in about 91. And so you guys, how, let me ask this way, how soon between you guys forming in 91, you guys released your first record Flower in 92, um, mm-hmm. was it a pretty immediate, like you guys were writing and recording right away or was there a sort of a feeling out period with adding, adding Kelly to the band and, and developing songs? No, I'd say by the time we moved to Brisbane, we were, you know, moving full steam ahead. Like I've always been a pretty like whip cracking, let's get to work kind of guy in a band situation. And, uh, you know, we've been writing and recording in in that previous band for, you know, three or four years already. So we had the momentum up and running. Kelly just sort of hops on board the train and we already had maybe a dozen songs that we were ready to demo or record. And so we just hit the studio and did it like within a few months. And then you put out two records on Survival Records. 92's was the debut Flower and then um, 93, Burn Out Your Name. Now, at, at that time, I'm sure... What was going on in the U.S. with you know Pearl Jam and Nirvana, those sorts of things were happening, and that was sort of impacting not just the U.S. music scene but around the world. Um, how conscious? '92 um, is is about the time that Nevermind came out, which was sort of the big album. How conscious mm. were you of what was going on in the U.S. in terms of the alternative music? Because it seems like there was a parallel between the rise of alternative music in Australia as well as in the U.S where that wasn't really happening in, in the UK, it was more built around like the Manchester scene and more like the dancey bands at that time before it got into like the Britpop sort of in the middle of the decade. So were, were bands like Nirvana and Pearl Jam breaking through in Australia? Uh, they were huge over here. And honestly, it felt like, um, I guess, uh, imagine you, you're um, in England in 1977 and the punk thing's just sweeping up the whole nation. It almost felt like that again because... It was such an. It was like a real explosion of the underground going overground, and it was bands that we'd been listening to for years. Like we'd been listening to Nirvana since 1988 or whenever it was, and it was the point at which all these bands were going ballistic, and they were on the radio all the time. And it was like we were just walking around with our fists in the air because our day had come. You know what I mean? It was this mm-hmm. huge explosion, and of course, it had sort of like various negative kind of follow-on effects over the years, as well as all the positive ones. But, um, yeah, we were very influenced by it. And, you know, back then we were kids. We were influenced by the music. Some of our songs sound like, you know, we're just trying to write a Nevada song or something. Right. And one of the bands that when I was listening to um, Kitten Licks, which we'll get into in a little bit, specifically with the fact that, you know, you have Kelly in the band, it automatically to me draws a comparison to a band like the Pixies, where they're able to use the, the male-female vocal trading back and forth, or a band like Sonic Youth, where you'll have male and female vocal trading back and forth on different songs. Um, were either of those bands influences on Scream, Scream Feeder at the beginning? 
Yeah, definitely. Um, I was working in a record shop and I remember to this day, the first day the boss of the record shop put on the Pixies and it was just one of those moments where everybody's mouth just dropped open. You went, oh my God, of course. And you got the dynamic thing. I mean, that's where Nirvana got the whole dynamic thing from. And mm -hmm. the male-female thing was just awesome. And it was like weird in the Pixies because you couldn't tell which one was which. You know, like Frank Black's voice was actually higher than Kim Deal's. And uh, it just sort of fell in naturally for us because Kelly, you know, had songs and she, she was into doing harmonies and whatnot. So we, it just sort of opened the floodgates in a way. So in, um, let's see, 95, you put out, and I'm, I'm going based on uh, Wikipedia. So if there is any, you know, incorrect information mm -hmm. that you can correct sure. me at any point, you put out uh, Fill Yourself With Music. Uh, you changed labels uh -huh. from Survival to Hypnotized label. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And then in 96, that followed that up with Kitten Licks. Kitten Licks recently got, not recently, but I guess a couple years ago, got re-released with bonus tracks. Um, yeah, we did that ourselves, actually. Okay, what was the impetus behind doing that? Is that? Would you consider that to be the, I guess you'd say, like, ultimate Scream Feeder album in terms of how your fans reacted and, and where what you feel about it? Um, definitely in terms of how the fans reacted, and it was one of those situations where it was just perfect timing and it was a fluke of time and place. Um, it was an interesting time for the band because we'd just gotten rid of our drummer who appeared on the first three albums, a guy called Tony Blades. Him and Kelly were having issues and it was a little stiff and a little hard to get along with in the band. And we decided to let him go and we changed drummers and we got this kid who was in this like a dirge rock heavy grunge band called Hate Man. And we went, we used to go along and watch him play and we were mesmerized by him. He was just this machine on the drums, a guy called Dean. And we, when we lost Tony, our original drummer, we said to this guy, Dean, hey, you want to be in another band? He was like, yeah, I'll give it a try. And he came along to practice and like seriously within 10 minutes, it was like the band had been reborn and everything was amazing because he was incredible. And it really opened the door for Kelly to come forward a lot more vocally. So the album that came out, it was a result of us us three just going into rehearsal every evening for a couple of hours and banging out more riffs and songs and just writing all those songs in the period of probably six months or less. And it was just a real, you know, spark. It was a, it was a lovely, inspirational little piece of time that, you know, we managed to capture on tape well and everyone sort of got it, you know? Yeah, and, and it's interesting that you mentioned about his background as a drummer because the Kitlicks opens up basically with this huge drum part on the you know he's pounding that intro yeah. drum part on the first track uh static and um i wanted to talk about that song and then we'll get into a little bit more of the the rest of the discography mm -hmm. i'm gonna build a radio with static from
In listening to that, it reminded me of some previous songs that are about the radio, for better or worse, like Elvis Costello's Radio Radio or Left Off the Dial yeah. by The Replacements. Those songs sort of take more Elvis Costello, but uh, negative views of the radio. You know, radio is a sad salvation or left off the dial. They don't necessarily paint radio in a positive light, but your song sort of, in reading the lyrics, see it as like sort of a, a uniting force. How big a deal for you was radio in terms of discovering music when you were a kid? Oh, it was totally um, huge because literally I would lie in my bed with the, my little tiny transistor radio under my pillow listening to the John Peel show in England where I grew up. And it was really one of the only mediums where a kid with no money obviously could uh, you know, discover heaps of awesome new music. So I'd also have one of these little, you know, those radio with a cassette recorder inside it. Mm-hmm. And so I'd make I'd make endless, endless compilation tapes of stuff I'd hear on the radio. So every song would start, you know, a, a few seconds after the start of the song, after I'd sort of thought, hey, shit, this sounds good, and I'd press record, and it would stop after the guys sort of started back announcing. So I'd have, like, hundreds of tapes of, you know, snippets of songs and things, and it was uh, a real way that I'd built my musical sort of collection and identity over my sort of teen years and my 20s, actually. What were the... If you were to go back and listen to those tapes now, um, which I still do sometimes, you do. Oh, that's awesome! <laughs> Are, were there particular bands that you recorded more than other ones, or was it just like whatever was on the radio? I was going to try to grab and then listen to, or were you drawn um, to particular artists at that age? In the beginning, in the beginning, I was totally into the punk stuff. So if someone came on that had a fast beat or a heavy guitar, or you know, some guy shouting out the front, or especially some swearing, I'd always hit record and sort of like I moved through the period of the sort of very late seventies into the early eighties doing that. And then after a while, I was I was back in England for a while in eighty six, uh, staying with my dad, and I I realised that I was going to you know leave the country and come back to Australia in, in a week. So I just pushed record right at the beginning of the show and recorded the whole show. So I have all these tapes of actual, you know, an hour and a half of the whole John Peel show and very eclectic, like there'd be world music on there, there'd be early hip-hop, there'd still be some punk, there'd be this very weird atonal English um, indie stuff from the 80s and it was just a whole collection and it's just, uh, yeah, just a fantastic way of accumulating tunes back then. And people complain about pirating music these days. (laughs) I know, I know. And the funny thing is that everyone used to tape everything for each other. It was crazy. Well, not only that, I had the double cassette deck, so I could actually like throw in my, you know, Led Zeppelin four cassette, yeah. and then just rip it to another one and give it to my I friend. Had well. Yeah, I yeah. had those as well. And it was like <laughs> the most amazing purchase I'd ever made. <laughs> yeah, well, the best. I mean, that's you know, you get that, and then you'd be like, you know, I don't like the way that this album is sequenced, or I think I could take these two albums and put them together and make a better album, and. Play producer. Or I can even edit a song or fade it out early or shut the chorus out. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, so just getting back into the into the history of the band. So between uh, 96 or in 96 Kit Licks comes out and then it's four years later for uh, Rocks on the Soul, which is the fifth album. Now that was a long time for you guys. You pretty much put out an album either every year or every other year. What was the reason for the four-year hiatus between... Uh, those two records uh we signed a deal with a company in america called um our time bomb records and they put out the album in america but by the time all the paperwork was done and all the promo was done and whatnot it was probably at least like mid 98 or something 
maybe pushing towards 99 and we're cool with that but then we said to them hey we're ready to go and record our next album um in australia can you you know send us the advance or whatever and they were like no way are you recording another album until kitten licks has been out for at least a year in america and we were like oh my god this is terrible we've got like 20 songs ready to go and we we agonized over it for ages and in the end we compromised two ways the first one was to record an album of covers because legally we were allowed to record material that wasn't our own. So we put out, and it was kind of like an extended EP, 10 songs of covers here in Australia called Home Age. And that kind of, you know, kept us happy for a little while. And then we still had these new songs sitting around. And eventually our manager said, look, you're going to have to concentrate on your career in Australia and you're going to have to abandon this record label deal in America. So we did that and it was uh, a weird thing, but I think it was the right decision in the end. And as soon as we'd done that, we went and recorded Rocks and Soul. Well, and, and Time Bomb ended up folding anyways because they had Sunny Day Real Estate around that right. time. And then they just sort of collapsed. I think they tried to put, I don't, I don't know what the deal was exactly, but I think they blew their promotional budget on that Sunny Day Real Estate album and uh-huh. uh, that, that sort of fell apart after then. I think, Jay, that was around the time we saw them and then we were touring with No Knife. You remember that? Uh, Yeah, that was that was like 2000. 2000 right yeah it was right around 2000 so then you, um well go ahead sorry well i was just uh thinking about um i guess wanting to understand the uh the the record labels in australia a little bit better it, so the labels that we're on can you give us a little context to like you know are they considered um indie or mid mid major or major and and you pretty much have you know your own set of record labels over there or are there you know some of the more popular american ones um over there as well how does that all that work um well in the time we're talking about like 90s 2000s um whilst people were still buying cds in quite good quantity and things like that before everything started collapsing there was uh, a record label called shock and they were the big indie label in the country they just had a huge office and they released a lot of stuff they had a lot of small subsidiaries one of which was hypnotized which is the label we were allocated towards so they were a great label, you know, we had a five album contract with them, with good recording advances and things like that. And the whole scene was pretty healthy. Uh, if you're a good band and you had a collection of good songs, chances are you'd find a label to pay for your recording and release it. So um, oh, obviously that all started crumbling in the mid 2000s when the digital thing came in and now it's really unheard of to have a record label pay for your recording. And honestly, I look back at that time and think, my God, we were so lucky. It's incredible. So then, uh, 2003, uh, take uh, take you apart uh, on came out on Rhythm Ace Records, and is that considered basically the last? I know there was the, I think you put out a compilation, the Cargo Embargo compilation, but is that considered the last Scream Feeder full length? Yeah, that definitely was the last uh, full length album of um, you know original material. After that, we did an EP in 2005, uh, and plus we did. Uh, a collection of singles and also rands, which came out in about mid 2000s as well, plus the cargo embargo thing. So, you know, honestly, ever since 2005, we've been trading on the back catalogue pretty heavily. But you've you've been busy though. You've you put out a, a solo album in 2006. Um, how's it? How does it end? And then you put out albums with We All Want To. Is that correct? In 2010. Yeah. yeah. Can you talk a little bit about? Um, the difference between sure. recording on your own and, and then recording with Scream Feeder? 
Mm. Well, the, again, I look back and think, God, wasn't it easy and wasn't I lucky? Because recording the screen feeder was simply a matter of going to the studio for two or three weeks at the most, banging out the songs, mixing, you know, one to four songs a day, and everything was easy and great, and the songs just fell into place. Um, that was mostly back in the days when you did mixing on tape as well, which is kind of a really quick and awesome way to record. Um, I did my solo album, and that was agonizingly long because I, I could, I did have the luxury of, you know, spending weeks making a mix on the on the computer or whatever it was. So that was a hard one. I released an album by a band called The Watch, which I was in a two-piece band, and that was a fairly quick affair. That was fun. And last year, I released a second album by my new band, We All Want To. Now, I read some interesting uh, stuff on the We All Want To website, which was a different lead vocal on every song for one of your shows. Yeah, um, we did that two weeks ago, actually. Okay. Um, we, decided, we decided that we needed to broaden things a little and step out of the pub club circuit. And we put on a show in a theater where we invited um, a singer from you know different Brisbane bands uh, to perform one of one of our songs, so we end up doing 17 songs. We got 17 different singers in, and it was amazing because everybody involved really brought a lot of personality to the song. They put a lot of effort in. They learned it. They performed well, and it was very diverse. Like we had a performance poet doing a song, which is you know usually a fairly big rock song, and he did it in this very subtle downbeat kind of manner. And we had girls singing guy songs and guys singing girl songs, and. It was an amazing night. It was so fantastic. What were the practices like for, for that? How do you coordinate getting all those people prepared for that sort of thing? It was a nightmare, and we were so under-rehearsed. Like, seriously. <laughs> Most people were able to, probably about three-quarters of them were able to make it into one of our rehearsals for, you know, 20 minutes, half an hour, and run through the song a few times. And that was fine. I mean, the beauty of it was that every person only had to learn one song, so it wasn't actually that difficult. And for us, it was easy because we just had to stand back and play. And the worst that could happen was we might have to, you know, pitch a song differently, play it in a different key or something like that. So in in one way, the logistics was hard, but um, musically, it was actually quite easy. Well, that's a good segue. You mentioned about pitching a song and, and the keys and stuff like that. Uh, getting back into Kitten Licks, because one of the things I wanted to ask you about is in terms of songwriting and then deciding, I'm not, I'm not sure if there's a deciding point, but... When you're figuring out who's going to sing songs, is it based on who wrote the song or is it based on whose vocal works better for the part um, or who can sing it? In Screen Feeder, it was always who wrote the song because we never played with capos back then. So I'd write the song and it'd be in a key that I was kind of comfortable with already and Kelly would do the same. Uh, in We All Want To, we've abandoned that and we... Um, we never really decide on the final key of the song until we work out who's going to sing it. So there's been quite a few cases where I've written a song and Sky's ended up doing the lead or Sky's written a song and I've ended up doing the lead and we've only nailed the, the pitch, you know, right at the last moment before recording probably. Interesting. Okay. Do you find that that kind of changes the, f- the feel of the song when you kind of sh- shift the pitch around like that? Or does it kind of all work out? Um, well, it's funny because uh, we always use capos. So... The, the various notes and the, and the feelings of the chords always remain the same. Like, yeah. um, you know, we wouldn't like play a song in one bunch of chords and just shift the chords. We'd always capo up. Um, mm. The other thing is, I guess, when you go higher, it, 
something sounds nice about going higher up the neck. And so if we have to raise the pitch, it's always kind of you know, a pleasant experience because uh, mm-hmm. things always sound a bit more lively higher up for some reason. Um, yeah. Occasionally, like we've got this one song at the moment, which when I wrote it, I started it in D and then we brought it back down to C for the bang because it was too high. And I'm just still suffering from it and I'm going to have to drag it down and not sure to again and we're going to have to relearn it down a little further and work out how to do it and stuff. But yeah, it's nice to be able to have that sort of flexibility. Is that something that you were even aware of at the time you were in Scream Feeder that, you know, that you could you could do that? And, it, you know, I've just found it, uh, being a musician myself, that's something that hadn't even occurred to me, you know, until I was a little older and more <laughs> a little bit more mature yeah. and talked to more people that you could even do that. When did you realize I, then? I, that you I guess could, it was. You, I guess having never used capos back then, it was. I was still aware of it because I knew that if I played, you know, on the high E string, if I played the third fret G, with that ding, I knew that that was pretty much as high as I could go vocally. And so I'd, when I'd write the song, I'd sort of test it and make sure there was no points where I went above that. And if it did, if it, or if it touched that, I'd be I'd be aware that I'd have to really scream it to get up there, you know. Right. Um, so I sort of had that subconscious sort of thing of making sure it was in that right region between the sort of G string and the high G on the E string. Right. So you really became comfortable with like understanding where your limits were and making sure that, you know, you went right up to the edge, but you never pushed yeah. yourself <laughs> But the problem is that in the ensuing 15 years, my voice has dropped heaps. And we did a gig uh, about two years ago. It was billed as our final show, even though we've gone, you know, proved that to be false at least once since then. Uh, and we did all the old songs, and my God, it was impossible singing some of them because I, I just can't get up there anymore. It was really hard. Yeah. 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 Speaking of not final shows, uh, you opened for Bob Mold when he recently went out on tour. Um, can you talk a little bit about that, playing with him? Because I hear a lot of Husker Du and, and, and Sugar influence. Um, especially mm. on this record, with the, with the guitar playing and the and the yeah. use of, of noise in certain aspects, um, what was it like playing with them? And and I guess my the follow up would be, is is that or is Bob's music an influence in any way on you? Um, it's a huge influence because um, I think around the time of. God, it must have been the mid '80s, probably you know '84, '85. Um, I. I just stumbled across Zen Arcade in a record shop in England and I took it around to my friend's place and put it on. It was like, oh my God, this is like taking punk in such a massive leap forward. It's, it's become more intense. It's become more melodic. It's become faster. It's become better songwriting. And my, apparently my friend took it around to this party where there was some people tripping and they just, they were like losing it over this album. <laughs> There's sort of psychedelic elements in it as well. And so they become, you know, a huge influence on me. We used to listen to them incessantly in the late 80s. And obviously things like the guitar playing, it's not rocket science, but it's just got a whole lot of licks which are very cool and very sort of catchy and things like that. And in, I think it was 1992, or it was possibly 91, Bob Mould toured Australia solo for the first time and we supported him then. And when we got offered this show, it was just too much to resist. You know, I called up the guys and said, look, I know we've done our last show, but this is going to be fantastic. And they were like, yeah, let's do it. And so we rehearsed twice and yeah, it was just great. Like we played a great set. Everybody loved it. Um, Bob Mulder's amazing. We did about 10 Who's Could Do songs. So it was a good one. I mentioned the, um, the guitar playing. Do you, I, you know, I remember, or I, I in, re- in listening to this record, there were a lot of 
guitar elements that stuck out, whether it was I'm hearing a little bit of like some Sonic Youth style um, harmonics or, or, you know, of the, I guess you'd say the Nirvana-esque, um, you know, overdriven stuff. Um, do you remember what your, your setup was in terms of your, your guitar rig at that time? Uh, which, which time in particular? For, for Kitten Licks. Oh, Kitten Licks, I had um, a Marshall, a Marshall uh, Super Bassman head into a quad, and I was just running the one amp, and I had, I'm pretty sure I had a Music Man guitar with an active pickup in it back then, and I was just using an MXR Distortion Plus, which is the famous, like, this could do distortion sound. Mm-hmm. And has that changed over the years? Well, I ran with the MXR for at least a decade until I kind of got to the point where I found it a little limiting. So I've always toyed with other pedals and other amps, but I'm really, I'm just such a non-gear guy. I'm really lazy with gear. I'm just, I'm, I just haven't got the money to buy heaps of gear. So I'm just always a bit of, um, you know, I'll run with what I've got and I'm both, most of it kind of guy. Just talk a little bit about, um, I mean, you guys are a three-piece, and on the record you're doing, you know, some overdubbing here and there with the guitars and doubling guitars mm-hmm. up. Just talk a little bit about, you know, being a three-piece and uh, some of the challenges in that, both re- from a recording standpoint and also from, a you know, trying to present that live. Um, you know what? I think there's virtually no challenges. Um, being three-piece is the most awesome lineup because everybody gives each other the space sonically, physically, etc., um, mm-hmm. I played the recent Bob Mole show with two amps. I had my Fender Deluxe and a friend's Fender Deville, and I had them cranked. And no one, the sound guy wasn't complaining. You know, everyone could hear themselves still. And um, yeah, it's just in the studio, you you can sort of you, you're free to do whatever you want, of course, and to right. to make it a bit thicker and a bit more involved. But the nature of being a three piece is that all your songs are going to be fairly simple anyway, fairly straight up, because you've got to just be able to strap on your guitar and play them together. So when you record, it's not a, a matter of going, wow, these songs really need something to bring them out, you know, because the songs are already there. Yeah. One of the uh, things that I like about the record a lot is <laughs> there's a lot of shifts in tempo and in and it, mm-hmm. it's constantly reinventing itself. Uh, one of the points where I really like is uh, Dart, which is the third track, has kind of this sing-songy kind of, I don't want to say simple melody, but... It has this very sugary melody to yeah, yeah. Uh, to the chorus, but then the next song, "Bruises," is like a minute forty. It's a very punkish. It's I think it's in terms of getting close to Husker Du territory as as you guys get on the record. <laughs> Was that a conscious thing in terms of wanting to shake it up from song to song with writing and wanting to constantly like push into different sounds and territories? Because even on Dart, 
there's something I'm not quite sure what's going on, but there's like an odd timing to the guitar in that. Is it a yeah. is it sip what's going on with that? Uh the dancing's hilarious because when we were at practice, uh you know, we always have these discussions, as I'm sure most bands do. Oh, how about if we do it like that? And then, and then one guy just goes off on this huge tangent, and he's sort of like pushing the band, and the band's like struggling to keep up with him. And he's going, "What if we do this? What if we do this?" And everyone's trying desperately to follow him. And you know, 40 minutes later, he gets back to the very same point on the circle that he started from, and goes, "I think that's how it should be, guys." And everyone's like, "Oh, you bastard! You know, you've just <laughs> put us through the ringer for 45 minutes, and you're back to the start." But with with Dart, I think we did a lot of that and we tried to turn the riff around and stuff. And Dean just kind of did it on the drums and we kind of just followed him and that's how it became. But still to this day, the little point where he turns the beat around always trips me up. And I'll still make a mistake on it even though I've been playing it since 
Well, it's nice because it provides a different, you know, flavor to the record. I think that's yeah. one of the things that I really like about the record is there's no songs that repeat in terms of their style or their emotional output. It's it's a very much a this song has a real punkish feel, and then this song has sort of an art rock feel, and mm. then you get to uh, especially in the second half of the record. Um, and I wanted to ask about Helen's theme. Um, it's kind of an odd track in that it's basically uh, half the song is a drum track and then half the song is a piano track. Where did that come from? Was that basically was that a studio experiment? Uh, pretty much. The drums were um, the drums were just the beat from Dead to the World, Slow Ride Down, and that was back when we recorded tape, obviously, so you could do things like that. And as soon as you know the engineer switched the speed down, everyone was like, "Oh man, that sounds amazing!" Because it was repeat and boomy. The piano we'd had sitting around since we recorded Burn Out Your Name and we'd just, you know, never used it before. So we just sort of collaged it in. Cool. So the version of the record that that we're listening to that's available on Spotify has 19 tracks. What was the original um, release? What songs were contained on that and how many of these were added? Um, well, that was the 11-song release, which is pretty much the first... Like, it's the first 12 songs you got there minus Helen's theme, because Helen's theme wasn't cataloged as a track. It was just slipped in between. Uh, I think it was on the end of Ant, actually. So, yeah, it stopped after um, Pigtails on a Rock. That was the last song on the record. Okay. And that's my, that's my uh, I think, favorite song on the record. And I'm, I'm really interested to hear uh, how a song like that came together, because it's based on, I guess, uh, our bass and guitar harmonic kind of mm. melody, mm. counter melody, and then... There's this, you know, obviously, um, it seems like the the main vocal was a was a was an early part of the song. Listening to it, and then it it spirals into uh, uh, a saxophone solo for the end. And I am no fan of saxophone, but it, it is a very cool use of of that instrument um, to to wrap the album up. So can you can you just walk us through how that song came together? Isn't it funny with saxophone? Like people really love it or hate it. Like you never meet anyone. <laughs> You've never, I've never met anyone in my life who goes, yeah, I don't mind yeah. the sax. Or, I quite like the sax. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm a huge, huge fan of the saxophone. And for me, yeah, that saxophone solo on the end is just uh, brings, you know, goose, goosebumps to my skin kind of thing. Um, but the album, I mean, the song again came about of us standing around just jamming and playing the harmonics and getting a beat around them and things like that. The lyrics, I'm pretty sure, were, you know, the last thing, the icing on the cake, almost like an afterthought because the music was so cool. Mm. And um, I was playing in a drop G tuning, so it's E G um, on the bottom strings, which is a tuning I got off Tim Rogers from UMI, and it just makes it very easy to skate around the neck and play heaps of open stuff and and play very minimal chords, and everything sounds very full, you know. Yeah. So it's fairly droney, and um, it's a really easy song to play, and I love it myself. It's, it's definitely one of my favorites as well. I love the tempo of it and how how restrained you guys stay. Was there any points that did you do you have any struggles with that? I know sometimes it's it can be difficult to to play at that sort of very kind of you know a slower tempo and very methodical sounding. Um, I guess we're really lucky because Dean's such a he's just a real metronome on the drums. I mean, live he doesn't metronome; he goes pretty fast. But in the studio, he's really good at sitting back on the beat. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't. Did it with a quick track from memory, um, but yeah, he's as I said, he came from that background of playing this very slow core kind of band, and mm-hmm. we were all we were all really into groups like Seam and Bitch Magnet and Codeine and those very restrained bands. So it's mm-hmm. nice to sort of put that um, influence in there. 
Sure. You mentioned that you that this was written sort of standing around uh, when you were at this time. How much of that was the band for writing songs standing around and, and sort of jamming, and how much of it was you coming in with sort of a a, a complete song or a most of a song, um, and and working on an idea that way. Uh, I'd say 50-50, like probably songs like Static, Bridge Over Nothing, Broken Ladder, Dead to the World. They're all songs that I brought into the band. And um, almost all the rest of them, yeah, we're just throwing ideas around and, you know, half an hour later we've got the background of the song. Did you ever find that, you know, you would come in with a song and it would get sort of reshaped to the point where you'd be like, this isn't what I started, this isn't what I wanted? Or was there enough of a trust in the in the rest of the band that you, you were going to go in a direction that it was going to turn out as best as it could regardless of where it started originally um there was definitely that trust there and you know going back to the three piece thing all the songs were fairly straightforward and there was definitely a very economical thing going on where there was no extended periods of instrumentation there was no real guitar solos for very long there was tight endings, tight beginnings. So really I could bring a song in and be, be fairly sure that it would emerge fully formed 90% close to what I had it, you know. Um, in We'll Want To, however, it's a real different story because honestly some songs I bring in and it might take way longer to put the song in a shape. Like there's some songs we've wrestled with for months actually and they emerged like radically different from what I had but I'm always happy and I always feel that they're better and everyone's input has been a great positive thing. Did you have a blueprint of, of um, sort of how you like to write or structure songs, either as an individual or a band? And if so, what what was that blueprint? What, you know, what was there another band or another record or something where you could say, you mm. know, this is the way not, that I write a song? Not really. Uh, I just, um, I mean, sonically, it's nice to sort of, it's always like this reassuring thing to sound like such and such or sound like this band or that band, but. As far as songwriting, I, I always really try and keep myself open and if a twist or a turn happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it doesn't. And mm. if it's time for a fifth verse, I'm going to write a fifth verse. Or if it's time to pull the song up, I'll just pull it up. And you just got to go on your intuition. So, yeah, no blueprint. Gotcha. You mentioned that this got released in the U.S. on uh, Time Bomb. So did you end up doing much touring in the U.S. at that time? Uh, we actually didn't do any. Um, what happened was that... Um, it, yeah, it just kind of stagnated for a while and nothing really eventuated. But what also happened was in 1993, we got um, Burnout Your Name was released on Tang in Boston. And we were all set to go on tour. We were going to go and play in one of the early South by Southwests. And um, there was this really strange situation where we were literally, well, not literally, we didn't actually have our stuff in the bags, but we, we had our bags packed ready to go kind of thing. And in the end, the guy at the record label it didn't, his credit card bounced or something. We didn't get the air tickets and it just fell through and it's real disappointment for us. But, you know, disappointments happen in the band just as pleasant surprises do. So it's just part of being in a band. Right. And you did end up playing South by South once eventually, right? Yeah, I think it was in 04, maybe something like that. Right. Because uh, actually uh, a friend of ours who's a music journalist, Chip Midnight, He, I think he interviewed Kelly at the 2004 South by Southwest. He posted something on our Facebook page about huh. that. So, what did you say his name was? Chip Midnight. Chip Midnight, the best name in rock and roll. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty spectacular. 
<laughs> so you put out the um, We All Want To record in uh, 2010. Are there plans for another record, or are you planning on doing more solo stuff? What's What's in the future for you? Well, that was the first one. Uh, we put out the second We All Want To album in September of last year. So okay. we're still working. We're still working that album. We're going on tour. We've released an EP from it. We, we've actually. We've actually got a promo EP um, being promoted on the radio in America at the moment, featuring one of the songs from it. So, yeah, we're going to, you know, spend the rest of this year doing a bit more touring and writing some new songs and look at recording the third we all want to have next year. Are there any plans to do deluxe releases with any of the other Scream Feeder albums? I know I read something on, I think it was the Scream Feeder website, about getting some of the back catalog back under your control. Well, yeah, that happened in 2009, and that was the impetus for doing the Kittenlix thing. Like, we actually, we actually got control over our entire catalog back from all the various labels, and it was a momentous occasion because all of a sudden, a, I had all these boxes of CDs in the house, and b, I could, you know, administer the iTunes, the Bandcamp stuff all myself. I could just handle everything, and it was just really great take back of power because, really, the people who had the albums have gotten to the point where they weren't obviously concentrating on them anymore. So yeah. it was just nice to bring it all back home. And as far as deluxe editions, that's a tough one because I I was inspired to do the Kittenlix one because originally we planned to do one gig in Brisbane playing Kittenlix in its entirety. And the, the vibe and the reaction to that went so ballistic that we thought, my God, we've got to make a national tour and why don't we do the album? And it was fairly easy. But, you know, you've got to sort of assess whether there's real demand for the other albums or whether it's just going to be a lot of expense. It's, it's a hard one to sort of uh, work out, actually. Um, and as the years go by, it's, you know, probably less and less likely. I do want to do a, a compilation similar to Cargo Embargo of unreleased uh, demo tracks that we haven't ever, you know, done anything with over the years because we've probably got about 20 songs sitting around which no one's really heard. And just out of curiosity, when, the, when you got the... The, the, the songs back and the, and the albums back, was it a, con- a contractual thing where the, the, basically the contract had run out or did you have to base, did you have to do some sort of negotiating to get those? Yeah, most contracts had run out, but there's always this huge element of goodwill where you have to say to the label, look, you know, I'll take the stock off your hands, I'll give you a buck per CD or whatever it is. Um, and yeah, you just got to be nice about it. And because uh, in the end, these people have, a lot of money and you probably haven't recouped and things like that but you're probably doing them a favor and getting rid of the box of cds and taking it off their hands so it's kind right. of win-win but you've got to play it nice you know <laughs> getting in close to the hour mark so um this is a good time to wrap up i know we've got the uh scream feeder website which is screamfeeder.com and then we've also got the um we all want to website which is we all want to.com um anything else you want to uh, mention as far as uh, upcoming shows or releases? I know you mentioned that the EP was out for We All Want To and it's um, here in the US. Anything else, Tim? Well, I guess that's the thing I'd like to mention. Yeah, we've got an EP out. The EP is actually called Sally Can't See and it's a 10 track EP because once again, we just couldn't limit it to two or three songs for radio. So we put a whole bunch of random collection of songs from you know different we all want to releases but the song which is up first is a song called no signs and it's from our album our second album last year so if anybody hears it or wants to hear it on the radio please you know make that call or make that facebook hit or whatever it is and help us help us spread the word 
I think you got a video on the website too, am I correct? We do, that's right. Cool, and we'll post that up uh, with this episode so people can check that out. Fantastic. Thank so you. I, I want to remind everybody, if you want to request an album like our friend Gavin Reed did, you can head on over to um, digmeoutpodcast.com for uh, our request to review page. Shoot us an email. Tell us what you'd like to hear. And um, Tim, thanks so much for coming on the show. And um, it took us a little while to figure out the time zones, but we got them straightened out. And this was a lot of fun. Thanks a lot. Yeah, it was fantastic. Thank you, guys. All right. For Jay, I'm Tim, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Join the conversation about this episode at digmeoutpodcast.com, where you can find links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed, as well as links to our request a review and merchandise pages. Yeah.